So I'm excited to take some time to teach you guys today on 2 Chronicles 7.14 because it really is like one of my, my life verses. It's actually the first verse I ever, I ever preached on here at the House of Prayer. And, um, and I feel like God's given me some good revelation on it and then also just shown me in my own life how I continually have to be practicing this verse. So I'm going to share a little bit of revelation, a little bit of practice, and then we'll go into a time of prayer. So the first thing I want to talk about is context, right? So this is actually what's powerful about this verse is it's a promise that God gave in an encounter with Solomon the night after the temple has been dedicated. And you have to consider this has been a day for Solomon that has been filled with supernatural wonders. He prays, dedicates the temple, and in verse 1 of this chapter it says, When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. Okay. So this was a powerful visitation of the spirit of God, not just to the children of Israel, but to Solomon himself. Right. And it was God making a statement, literally two generations of work. King David had begun the work. Solomon had completed it. You see later down, actually, verse 10. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their tents, joyful and glad in heart, for the good that the Lord had done for David, for Solomon, and for his people Israel. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Solomon successfully accomplished all that came into his heart to make the house of the Lord um, and in his own house. So it's just a, a period statement right there, like... This is something that begun generations before. There's been literally decades of work that have been put into this temple and the preparation. It's something that God gave the blueprints to, uh, to Moses concerning some of the elements that are there in the temple. And then gave elements of the tabernacle to David uh, through, through um, Samuel. And then we see the temple is the, the next iteration of the house of worship for the people of Israel. And it's something that the national identity to this day is tied to the idea of a house of worship and a temple in Jerusalem, right? They still go to the Western wall of the destroyed temple and offer their prayers there, okay? Because of their interpretation of the kinds of promises that we're looking at here, right? Um, And so then in verse 12, it describes the Lord appeared to Solomon by night. So it's after everything, after this amazing day, right? This incredible day of encounter where literally physical fire falls from heaven. And you know how when we feel that, that sense of God's presence with us, the sweetness of God's presence in a moment of worship and prayer, like that same glory came in such an incredible way that, that the priests were overwhelmed, Right, So it is a physical manifestation of fire and a tangible manifestation of glory. And then God speaks to Solomon in the night and says, I've heard your prayers and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens, there'll be no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. So when there is discipline in the land because of, because of the people's sin, because of idolatry, because they've turned their heart away from the Lord, because they've broken his commandments, because they've transgressed. And it becomes evident because God's judgment begins to manifest itself amongst a people or a nation. He gives this specific promise to Israel, obviously, but I believe it's applicable 
to what is true of Israel is a, a picture or a principle is what is true of God's dealing with all nations, right? And so we, as the children of God, Gentiles, have been grafted in the promise of Israel. We now rele- reside in the United States as the people of God. And what was true of Israel when they were in their land is true of the people of God in this nation. And when this nation turns away from God, those who are faithful can redirect us back to God through doing the principle that is in Second Chronicles 7.14. So consider, your land is being consumed by locusts, there's drought, there's fire, okay? I don't know if you guys have followed the news in this nation recently, but California has had the worst fires ever in its history. You know, we have droughts and floods, <laughs> different places across our nation. And right now we have a global potentially uh, epidemic of the coronavirus. I mean, we have a variety of different challenges, right? That are presenting themselves that seem to, in line with the biblical narrative, be signs of the times that are increasing in intensity and in frequency, right? And I don't believe that we'll be able to put an entirety of a halt to those global judgments because they're part of God's plan to birth his kingdom into this earth. But just as there were pockets of mercy, just like Goshen in the land of Egypt, when there were judgments, but it says because the children of Israel resided in the land of Goshen, the the judgments that hit every other part of the nation, um, there was a protective covering over the land of Goshen. I believe that God, if he finds a people whose hearts are turned fully towards him, in some cases he'll he'll stay his judgment and, and release mercy, especially when we call upon him to do so according to his promises. So I believe this is spiritually true. I also believe it's true regarding uh, the, the ability to, to entreat God for mercy on behalf of not just, not just Christians in this nation, but, but our nation as a whole. Because God says, if my people are called by my name, and if you're taking notes, you can kind of jot down these principles. Because I think we see uh, a few principles of revival in this passage, and then we see the promise of God's response, Okay. And what we have to understand is it doesn't begin, revival doesn't begin with the lost repenting. It actually doesn't begin with people that don't claim to love Jesus changing their hearts. Revival first and foremost begins in the church and it grows to touch society, right? So the impetus, the invitation is upon those who are called by his name. Christians, right? Little anointed ones. If you say, I'm a Christian, the literal translation of that word is, you're saying, I'm a little anointed one. You are called by the name of Christ, Messiah, right? If my people who are called by my name. And I also believe this speaks of unity, the principle of unity. So if people in a united way begin to do the things that are about to be described, that's step number one. If my people, who are called by my name, if the church takes responsibility and takes responsibility in unity, then God will respond. And it's so interesting because he says the first step of your response It could have been to cleanse yourself with confession, right? There are other things. A lot of times I like to think about why did God use this particular word? Because there's lots of other words that God could use to describe a change of heart. Okay. He could have said, confess your sins. He could have said, 
um, you know, uh, purify yourselves. He could, but instead he chose to use the word humble yourself, which implies humility is in opposition to pride, right? And so he says, if you want to do these things that I'm about to tell you to do, the very first thing that's going to be an obstacle to you is the pride of the human heart. I would say that the biggest obstacle to us truly experiencing revival in our nation is our disunity and our pride. And God addresses it with a one-two punch right here in this simple verse. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. So you must have unity that precedes revival. You must have deep humility and dependency upon God. Just like in Matthew 5, it says that blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's actually the poor in spirit, the humble, the meek, the lowly, that are the ones that get to be the forerunners the ones who actually elicit a response from God because he's near to the broken and contrite of heart. James 4 tells us, weep and lament your sins. Purify your hands. Cleanse your heart, you sinners. Get rid of your double-mindedness. Turn away from your sin. And it's the same thing that God says when, when he says, if you'll humble yourselves, right? When God begins to move, and, and so easy when God begins to move in discipline or in judgment in the land for people to puff out their chests and to respond in God to say, to say in, in human assertion, you know, um, who are you, God, to judge us, right? Who, it's, there's something wrong with you. There's not something wrong with us. And to point our finger at God. But he goes, if you will actually humble yourself and recognize that I'm righteous in my judgments. All my judgments are good and right and just. And whatever God is permitting, whatever God is allowing, that if we respond in humility to it, recognize you're God and I'm not. Like you're the potter, I'm the clay, right? You are the one that directs the affairs of the universe, not me. And it's from that place of humility and dependency that we're actually able to enter into the next two principles. Which I love this. If my people who humble themselves pray and seek my face. And I love that the scripture distinguishes those two things because in that we see the the two most core elements of prayer, which are intercession and intimacy, right? We have to pray. We have to ask. It's so amazing that the God of the universe invites us to come to his throne of grace, as Hebrews 4 says, to ask for help in time of need, right? We can come before the cosmic throne of the universe and entreat the God who created everything to change our life circumstances, the circumstances of our nation, the circumstances of our community. And God says, when you need help, come to me. And that my eyes are rowing to and fro throughout the earth, right? I think it's First Chronicles 16, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth, looking for one whose heart is loyal to him that he might prove himself strong on their behalf. God's eyes are searching. His ears are open to the prayer of the righteous. The Psalms tell us over and over again, God is looking for someone who is willing to ask. And he says very plainly, you guys fight and covet. Uh, in, again, I believe it's the book of James. You guys war over things, but you have not because you ask not. Right? And he goes, instead of lusting after things and then trying to get them in your own strength and stumbling into sin, he says the anecdote for the sinfulness of covetousness and lust is asking God from a pure heart. 
He says, when you ask, you ask amiss. But if we can ask of God with a pure heart, desiring his will, right? We know we'll have the things for which we've asked. If anyone asks anything according to his will, you can have the, you can have the confidence that he hears you and you have the things for which you've asked. This is in 1 John 5, right? So we have to pray. We have to not just think about praying. We have to not just go to teachings about prayer. We have to not just sit in prayer meetings. We actually have to pray to God. Do you know so often I will think about a problem far longer than I'll pray about it. I will worry about something far more than I'll pray about it. Which is why he tells us in Philippians, I believe it's three, you know, be anxious for nothing, Philippians four, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your requests known before God and the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus, right? So we have to pray, but it's not enough just to seek the hand of the Lord. We have to know in our praying, we're not just asking for, for God to do something so that our ministries will be blessed or, or so that we'll be prosperous. Those things are important, but he says, from the humble heart, don't just seek my hand, seek my face, right? And that's the intimacy place. That's the place of, of asking not of our Lord, but asking of our Father, right? And I love the story of Esther where the queen finds favor in the sight of the king because that's the picture of the bride of Christ when we come to our bridegroom, the one who favors us and he extends the scepter of his righteousness towards us and says, my beloved, Everything is yours up to half of my kingdom. Ask whatever you desire, right? Like that's the picture. How much more, you know, King Asawaris was a, an unrighteous Persian king. How much more is King Jesus, the gracious, kind king, and we come to him as a bride. And there's joy in that. We seek his, we seek his face, right? And so from the place of unity, of humility, of intimacy, and intercession, right, we begin to encounter God. And that's the picture of the face of God, right? And I, I believe that, you know, Solomon is, is at the peak of his, probably his uh, rulership of the nation. The temple has been built. His palace has been built. And the Bible is telling us God is visiting him in a moment that is his mountaintop moment, Right? And it's like by day there's been a, you know, he prayed and then the fire fell. Like there is a powerful sign and a wonder that is a declaration that Solomon is God's guy, right? But then God comes in the night and he says, Solomon, I realize that this is a moment where it seems like everything is going just right for you and for the kingdom, okay? But there's going to be a time that comes when because of the disobedience of this nation, instead of fire and glory filling the temple, there's going to be locusts that fill the land because of the sinfulness of the human heart. And I, what I want you to do is I want to tell you, I want to remind you that when you and future generations, when things start to fall into disarray, this is the way back, right? This is the way back to the land being healed. This is the way back to the glory filling the temple. This is the way back to the fire being upon the altar. And so it's a warning, but also it's a hopeful message. Okay. Can you remember a time in your life when the fire was fresh upon the altar of your heart? 
And maybe you've gone through some challenging times. Maybe it's even those challenging times that have brought you to the, this internship. And the invitation is that there's a place that God wants to bring healing in your life. And he wants to bring restoration. Remember that time when the fire was fresh on the altar. The glory was filling your inner person, right? And then look at this verse. And if you feel like the glory is waned and the fire is burned low, begin to humble yourself with all of your heart in intimacy and in intercession. And God is going to do some powerful things for you. So intimacy, intercession, but then God requires something. And I think it's so interesting that he says, seek my face, right? And then he says, turn from your wicked ways. Some people think they need to get cleaned up before they can come to God, right? But I think the order, God does nothing by mistake. I think the order here is so strategic. He says, come to me and I'll clean you up. Seek my face. And then turn from your wicked ways. Guess what? You're not going to get free of your besetting sin. You're not going to get free of that issue that's plagued you without first getting before the face of God. Mm -hmm. And knowing that it's actually the blood of Jesus that makes you clean and free and able to enter into his presence, not your own righteousness. And when you come before the face of God, right, in humility and in dependency and in intimacy, and you say, God, thank you for accepting me because I'm so undeserving in my own merits. But you've called me son, you call me daughter. And you know what? This is what's happening in my life. And I need your help. There are places in my own life right now where I'm going, God, I need more patience. I need more purity. I need pride to be broken down. And it can be an acute pain to come into the presence of God and realize how undeserving and how unworthy you are. But it's in that place of powerlessness and being stripped down before God in prayer and letting the word pierce your heart, letting the word deconstruct your strongholds. And it's in that place before the presence of the Lord that you actually get to turn and shed that wickedness, shed those grave clothes and actually come into the face of God and be a child of God, clean, holy and blessed. Right. And it's like stripping away the dead things. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Can you imagine if a generation just did what God said? Where we see unprecedented spiritual apathy, compromise in the church, and I believe the hand of God's discipline in so many ways. And we say desperately, we need another awakening. We need another revival. Okay, revival begins here, right? I remember a, a, a mentor of mine told me an anecdote when I was working at the summer camp. And I was frustrated because of some of the, my perceived spiritual apathy of some of the other counselors around me. And I was trying to wrestle through, you know, what am I, what am I to do when other people aren't hungry and I'm hungry and I, I feel awkward about the hunger and just all the pressure. And he, he gave me some wisdom. He said, he told me this story about an old intercessor who went in their prayer closet, drew a chalk circle around their prayer room, stood in the middle of it and said, revival begins here. And I kind of did that before the Lord. And I just said, you know, regardless of what the outside world says, like this summer, this moment, this season, I'm going to live from a place that is revived and I'm not gonna, and the first thing I'm gonna get rid of is my spiritual pride and refuse to judge and look at others or be afraid of their opinions of me, right? 
And as I did that, and I just re- said revival, yes, revival, true revival in the phenomenon of revival, as we've talked about historically, the Welsh revival, Azusa Street, first great awakening with Jonathan Edwards, second great awakening with Charles Finney, these movements of God throughout history, surely that they extend beyond an individual person drawing near to God in their heart. They extend far beyond that, but they never begin anywhere but there. Someone has to catch a vision for what is possible in God, and that person has to respond to God's invitation. All great revivals begin with a person who catches fire, right? And so I want to challenge you. That's where revival begins. And if you will do this, then your friends will see you do it. Your family will see you do it. You, you will provoke others and those others that are provoked and some will resist it and some will be drawn to it. But regardless, you'll be, you'll be living in the sweetest place of, of intimacy with God, right? And you'll be living, as Billy said the other day, not the person who wants to be revived by the revival, but the one who wants to be the catalyst to the revival. And it's, it's not complicated. It just requires your flesh to die. It requires your flesh to die in the place of fasting, in the place of rejecting entertainment, in the place of rejecting legitimate comforts. And I'm not saying like in a religious sense, I'm saying in a God, I must have you and whatever it costs, I'm willing to do whatever obedience, whatever place of death to self, death to reputation, death to my own dreams. God put it all in the grave because it died on the cross anyway, right? So let's just reckon it dead and and you revive in my life what is meaningful to you. You put in my life what is most precious and holy and beautiful in your sight because that's who I want to become. I want to become the image of Christ to a hurting and dying and broken world. I want to become the image of Christ to an apathetic and backslidden church. I want to become the picture of the fire on the altar and the glory filling the temple, right? And so we do these four things. We do them unapologetically. We repent of sin, right? We invite other people into that reality. We humble ourselves and we pray and seek the face of God. The Bible says so clearly, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Right? Isn't that a beautiful picture of intimacy? And it's so amazing because the very next verse tells us what happens when we draw near to God. It says, then we submit to God, resist the devil, and he flees from us. This is James 4, 7. Right? A lot of us... And even in my own life, we try to resist the devil without first seeking and submitting to God. And that's why you're getting your butt kicked in spiritual warfare. Right? I see the picture in my mind of like the little, the little kid with his hands on his hips and, uh, and all the bad dudes there to beat him up. They all start running away. And he's like, yeah, I'm the man. But really, it's his dad standing behind him flexing. But he doesn't know he's there. You know, it's like when we put ourselves under the shadow of the most high, it's in that place that we enter into, though we wrestle against principalities and powers and demonic spirits and they fire arrows at us. Right. We make God our refuge and our tower. Um, there is a there's a capacity to uh, to resist the enemy who wants to quench our fire, who wants to bring us into compromise, who wants to to cause us to be spiritually sick. And it comes when we humble ourselves and repent and seek the face of God. 
So God promises then three things that he's going to do. This is so amazing. So you do those four things, God will do these three things, right? Humble yourself, pray, seek my face. If we, his people, do that, turn from wickedness. What does God say he's going to do? He says, I'll hear from heaven. Okay. It's an amazing thing that God says, if you will pray, I will hear. We cannot underestimate the value of what it means. God says, because he says other places, I will, I will turn my ear away from the prayer of the, the prideful. I resist the proud, right? I resist the, the one who, uh, whose eyes are haughty and, uh, and heart is exalted against me. Like God resisted so many people throughout scripture because of arrogance and self-assuredness. But God says, if you'll humble yourself, pray and seek my face, I'll hear you. We can't take for granted the fact that God doesn't just listen to everybody. He listens to a specific kind of person. He shows up and proves himself strong on behalf of a specific kind of person. And it's not the kind of person we think, right? It's the broken person. It's the humble person. It's the person that's seeking God's face. Perhaps you're seeking a solution to a problem that you have. And perhaps the solution is instead of seeking a solution, you seek the face of God. Right? So he says he'll hear you. Second, he says, not only will I hear you, I'll forgive your sin. Do you realize that sin, unconfessed sin, undealt with sin, unacknowledged sin, actually puts a barrier between you and God? It's a barrier that Jesus removed at the cross, but you have to appropriate that forgiveness by faith, right? You have to enter into, it's not enough to know that your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, right? You have to actually believe and receive that, okay? It's, I believe the, the picture of it that we see in scripture is Jesus says to Peter, Peter, I need to wash your feet. Peter says, no, Lord, not me. Jesus says, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part of me. Peter says, my head and my body too, Lord, just wash me all, right? And I believe the picture of the cleansing of feet is like the picture of daily confession. The picture of uh, washing the entire person is a picture of baptism. If you've been baptized into Christ, you've been forgiven past, present, and future, right? You sins died with Christ and your spirit has been born again in Christ and his resurrection power. But what we have to do is we have to wash the feet. Right. We have to, because as you go throughout your day, you, you pick up dirt. <laughs> you transgress in different ways. You, you sin, uh, acts of omission and commission. Right? Many ways. Okay? But through confession, we confess our sins one to another that we may be healed. It says, if anyone says they have no sin, they're a liar. Right? And it says in 1 John, if we confess our sins... Um, one to another, he's faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He'll wash our feet for us because he's such a servant. But it takes humility to submit and say, Jesus, this is, where my, this is where I'm dirty. Lord, this is where I'm not clean. This is where I need you to touch me. And what does he do in those moments? Does he scold us? Does he say, I'll think about it, I'll consider it? And he says, let me get down because I'm the servant of all. And I proved it on the cross. And let me take the lowest place and let me wash your filthy feet. 
This is Jesus. Isn't it crazy that we make peace with our sin when he's, he's beckoning and offering to wash our feet? We say, I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going to try to manipulate this in my mind so that it's not as bad as, as the Bible says it is. I'm going to make excuses for it. I'm going to resist the place where God's been tapping me on the shoulder and saying, hey, son, you need to listen. Hey, daughter, you need to listen to this area. And I know it's true in my own life. And, and here's the thing is that cleansing from sin doesn't come through working harder. It comes through just submitting. Mm-hmm. Jesus, wash my feet. Mm-hmm. Come and make me clean. I'm yours. I'm your disciple. Right? So that's the picture. He'll hear from heaven and he'll forgive your sin. The forgiving of individual sin results in the healing of the land. I love that God cares about the individual heart, right? He'll forgive your sin and he'll heal your land, right? And I believe that land, when he says healing the land, he's talking about the locusts stop plaguing the crops. He talks about the fire, it's the fire stops burning the field. The drought stops in the land. The heavens open and the rain pours forth. I believe that we are in a moment of spiritual drought in America. It has been decades since the last revival touched this nation at a national level. And even then, those moves of God's spirit have been sequestered in denominational lanes and in spheres of influence that have touched one portion of the body, but not the entirety of the body. When the first great awakening took place, it was a population of 250,000 among the American colonies in the 1700s. And over uh, one-fifth of the American population was described as, as having been born again in that revival of religion, right? So close to 50,000 under the preaching of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and others that were part of that powerful move of God. If you were to put it on the same scale today at about a population of 30, 30 million, let's just for the simplicity of the math, let's just say 250 million Americans, right, that are perhaps not Christians, 50 million would become believers in a period of a short few years, right? When we say we want revival and healing in our land, that's the scale that we're talking about. And that far eclipses the ministry of Billy Graham or Reinhard Bonnke or any of the healing revivalists or Brownsville or Toronto or any of the awesome movements of God that we've seen over the past several decades. And while I'm very grateful for the sparks of revival, I want the fire of God that consumes the entire land and fills the entire church with his glory, right? I want to return back to the the kind of encounter that is a national encounter that Solomon uh, had experienced on the day that God gave him this promise. And as someone mentioned, he says, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be here forever. And it's amazing because God has not given up on Jerusalem. He's going to rule and reign from Zion one day. And I believe when he makes this declaration, he's showing us the pathway back to the full restoration, right? I mean, I believe that this releases regional revivals that happen in historical context, but ultimately in the big picture of of the ultimate restoration, the ultimate healing of the land. It's when Jesus comes, rules and reigns from Zion, the house that he's chosen for himself forever, right? 
and it's then that it will be healed. Our entire, the, the curse will be removed and all of the land of all the nations will be healed in permanence, right? So do you think that the solution is going to be any different? No. If you want to have a global revival, global healing through the return of the son and his restoration of the nations and the land, the prescription is still going to be the same as Second Chronicles 7.14. It'll be the children of Israel and all those that are grafted in saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are going to look upon the one whom they pierced and they are going to mourn. They're going to say, we were proud and we rejected him. And they're going to humble themselves. They're going to say, we've been sinful and wicked and they're going to repent, right? And when Israel finally receives their Messiah, it is going to be life from the dead and the healing of all the nations. We get to testify to that by living with a revived heart now. By living with healed families, and hopefully healed communities and healed cities now. And that prophesies about the ultimate return of the king when every, every tear is going to be wiped from everyone's eye. Right? And that's what's amazing about revival is revival is a taste of the powers of the age to come. It's like a a degree to which the curse is lifted off human bodies and bodies get healed. Demonic oppression gets pushed back. Sin and righteousness, sin gets overcome and righteousness reigns in people's hearts. And it's like heaven draws near and the church, which is flagging in strength, is revived by the power of the spirit of God. And what does all that point to? Heaven is real. Eternity is real. This is the glory one day that's not just going to fill a temple. It's going to fill the whole earth like the waters cover the sea. So we just, I think it's so important to remember the big picture, the big narrative, because it's amazing to talk about how essential revival is, but it becomes even more powerful and essential when you realize it is a testimony of what is to come. It's what has been at the day of Pentecost, and it is what, to, what is to come in the millennial reign of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for just this time to talk about revival. I pray, Lord, that you would release a spirit of revelation on us, that we would begin to see the places where we need to submit our hearts to you, Lord, and that you would begin to show us, God, places through sins of omission, sins of commission, where we've dishonored you with our hearts and our minds and our bodies, God. And we pray, Father, that as we humble ourselves in confession, you bring healing and cleansing, God, that you would look upon our wickedness, Lord, and that you would forgive our sin. Hallelujah. God, we pray, Father, for just that divine washing of the feet. We thank you, Servant King, that you invite us to seek your face and that it's a face that shines with a countenance of kindness and love and power and glory. Hallelujah. Lord, let us see the face of King Jesus. Shine the light of your countenance down on us, God. We want intimacy. We want nearness with you, Lord. And out of that nearness, God, bring healing and wholeness and power and glory. God, fill this temple with fresh fire. Fill this temple with fresh glory. Revive us today, O God, according to your word, according to the promise of 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Would you loose your healing? Let your eyes be upon us and your ears attentive to our cry. We come before the throne of grace right now, entreating you, O God. Send your fire. Send your glory again on your church. We need it, God. We need the manifestation of your presence and your power. Jesus, make us exceedingly zealous, 
Remove apathy from our souls. As we enter into this 40-day fast to come, God, over the next six weeks as we pray, Lord, remind, bring this verse to remembrance. In moments when people step up on the prayer mic, moments of intercession, help us to pray it with fervency. Help us to go through the movements of unity, humility, intimacy, intercession, confession. And as we do our part, God, we trust you to do yours. To cleanse, forgive, and heal. To hear and to answer us. We say we trust you this morning. We commit our lives to you this morning. We say all that we are and all that we have belongs to Jesus. And Lord, in our own lives, where that's the conviction of our hearts, but not the reality of the way we live, God, give us grace. Change us, God. Transform us. Let us be people. Let the people who bear your name also bear your likeness. Let us resemble you, Jesus. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.